Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It was another dark night in a grisly dungeon at Rome, and between the wails of other prisoners, the sounds of shackles, it was no doubt another sleepless night for the apostle as he contemplated his own possibility at death. And yet again, he was facing this this possibility of death over this good news, supposedly, that he'd been heralding and speaking for years and years now. In the midst of that, decades of suffering for this good news and, and on the verge of your own death, a rational person might be thinking, okay, so what now? What has it all been for? After all this faithful ministry, this is the end result? This is it? But in this despair, this despondency, even the temptation to apathy or regret, a light of dawn breaks through the aperture of his cell, just enough sunshine to provide the light to start writing a letter and the hope to start writing that letter to one of his most beloved churches, the church at Philippi, a letter that's become known as the letter of joy. And it's not too far of a stretch to imagine that that was similar to the scene that we see the Apostle Paul in when he's writing the letter to the Philippians. And the grim despair, despondency, the, the confusion, the, the regrets, the complacency that you might think that might be surrounding his heart and the flesh is probably similar to what the Philippians were facing. You know, it had been 10 years since they've seen their beloved apostle who came and planted that church, got them started, and then left them to go plant other churches. And, and, and you know what? It was probably 10 fruitful years of a lot of gospel ministry, a lot of fruit over the years, but also a lot of suffering no doubt social ostracization, no doubt scandal, no doubt reputations in the, in the commonplace of Philippi, being slandered. And now they get word that the man who led them to this good news is about to die. He's in prison. And in light of all that, their brother Epaphroditus returns with a letter from that apostle, a letter of hope, and a letter of joy. And it goes on, it starts in the verse 1 by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it starts out with a unique greeting from the Apostle Paul. Notice this humble tone that he writes to them with, purposefully opening up the letter this way. He typically starts his letters out by defending his apostolic authority, calling himself an apostle, establishing a a hierarchy of authority to get their attention, to grab their ears because they're being swayed away from something else. But that's not how he starts here. Instead, he, he writes to them on behalf of himself and his disciple Timothy, right? And not only that, but instead of using the, the title apostle for himself, which he very well could have and it was true, he called him and Timothy douloi, native plural of the word slave. It's servants in here, but it's the word for slaves of Christ Jesus, lowering himself below his readers almost. And he writes this to them in contrast to the the lowly title that he gives himself in this letter. He refers to everyone he's writing to as saints, as holy ones, as set apart Saints he's writing to, saying, I am a slave to the holy ones. That's who this letter is being written to. And I think one thing that we need to really notice here about this first couple verses is that when he says the word saints, he's referring to all the Christians that are at Philippi. Everybody in that church he calls saints. Saints here is used to refer to all Christians, and it's not a term just for the the outstanding, the extra saved Christians. It's not a term that's, that's canonized by the church as being people who were especially anointed and given a, a special amount of grace that other Christians don't have access to. And it's not even something that like, yeah, a lot of Christians have this sainthood, but you have to achieve that level. No, in fact, the word for saint in the New Testament is only ever used in the plural sense, only ever used when talking about a whole body of believers, saying that each and every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is cut apart, holy. They are saints. Now, this is really important to get because we see in this verse here, he doesn't even do much of a separation between the uh, church officers. You see, with the overseers and the deacons, he could have set a hierarchy of authority. The overseers, the elders are over the deacons, the deacons over the, the congregation, right? He could have done that, but he chose not to. He said, who are with the overseers and the deacons, these saints emphasizing the personal holiness and the high calling of every individual believer. And I think what we like to do in Christianity today is we like to separate the haves from the have-nots in the Christian religion, right? We have some forms of people who would call themselves Christians that say, no, you, you have enough grace to work yourself into the kingdom, but there are some people who received even more grace throughout church history who we dub as canonized saints. 
And even if we don't fall into that theological spectrum, we still have this kind of sense of, well, I'm a Christian, but the real responsibility of ministry, that's on the pastors. They're the Christian Christians, or, or those are on the Sunday school teachers, right? Those are on the saints. Those are on the Christian Christians, right? As if there's junior varsity in the kingdom and there's a varsity team, right? But Paul did not say to all the saints and to all you regular folks who maybe read your Bible once a week and try to make it to church and not be late. No, to all the saints, all the saints who are at Philippi, all the, not just the professional Christians, not just the extra Christian Christians, it's extremely important because it tells us of our standing in Christ before his eyes. The foot at the cross, at the feet of the cross is level ground for everybody. He goes on to make this further subtle point about the equality of Christians' identities being somewhere else other than their worldly stature by saying the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, as if they just so happen to be at Philippi right now in this short life they're living. He didn't say to the Philippian saints. He didn't say to the, to the uh, Philippians who are saints. He didn't say to the saints who are in Philippi, who live in Philippi. He said who are just at Philippi, meaning their heavenly citizenship is more important than where they're currently residing in this world that their identity as cut apart is more important now how we delineate between saints and normal Christians. And in the midst of the uncertainty and hopelessness, Paul greets them, greets them with grace and peace. All traditional letters he writes typically say greetings. Sometimes he uses grace and peace, typically on the end of his letters, though. And in this, he's reminding them that if they could just grasp the reality of God's grace in their life, only then can they come to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. I think a lot of us don't see ourselves as saints, as holy, set-apart people of God because we don't understand and grasp what grace is in our lives. He goes on to say in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day all the way until now. We see Paul moves on from his greeting to do an over-the-top, completely joyful expression of his gratitude and his prayer for them. He says, in all of my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer, for you all. Now, he didn't say for the overseers and deacons or for the extra saved Christians. He said, for you all. 
Now, one thing that we have to do, we have to pause here before we go on to the rest of this passage. Because this scripture, this passage of scripture has some expectations that it sets on God's people. And it also has tremendous promises of blessing on God's people. And a lot of us, we like to take the blessing without the responsibility, right? Without the expectations that comes with that, right? But if this is written to all the saints, to all of God's people, and you're one of those, then yes, you have the blessings that the word of God tells you, but you also have the same responsibilities, You can't say, I'll take the grace, I'll take the promises of God, but I'll leave the responsibilities to the people who take this more seriously than I do. Maybe the the, the professionals, maybe the uh, people who've been saved longer than me, maybe the people who are more respectable or don't have the past that I have. But if we're going to get to the blessing, then we have to get to the responsibility as well. And we see, he says, in all my remembrance for you all, always in every prayer for you all. And the result of Paul's prayer in his own heart while he's praying for them is joy. Joy. Why is this, though? It says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Typically, when Paul praise for his churches. I mean, I'm just thinking about the church of Galatia. You know, you, oh, you foolish Galatians, right? Or the church at Corinth, they're going through all types of issues. You would think that, that the prayers Paul has for most of the churches that he planted probably sounded a lot like the prayers that my grandparents had for me when I was lost, Right? They probably weren't filled with much joy. They were probably filled with a lot of groaning, with a lot of, with a lot of tears, right? But when he prays for the Philippians, he prays with joy. Because when he prays, he prays in thankfulness. He thanks God when he looks back and he reflects at what has been going on these past years in Philippi. The gospel fruits of their ministry brings him joy, from the first day until now, looking back at everything that was accomplished in Philippi, looking at the fruit of their salvation and what has been going on gives him joy. And it's on the basis of that that he has to tell them the rest of his message. Notice how he remembered what happened in the past, though, from the very first day. It was remembered. And in the same way, all of the perseverance through trials and tribulations of the Christian life and in church ministry that each and every believer in here this morning has endured, has been remembered with thankfulness and joy in the heart of God. It's every tear, every laugh, every potluck, every trial, every late night, Every setback, every family crisis, every victory, every struggle, every heartbreak, it's all been remembered in joy by God. 
and counted as precious, and none of it has been spent in vain. Which leads us to uh, what I think is one of the most staggering and astonishing promises in the entire Bible. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's one I don't think comes to a lot of people's minds, but it's one that the first time I read it and got it, it changed my life. It changed what I thought about God's keeping power over me. And it's a promise that my flesh almost does not want to believe. And that promise is that God will finish what he starts. Verse 6, and I am sure of this based on everything he just said, his thankfulness, his joy, looking back at the good fruit of their salvation and then their gospel ministry over the years that brings him joy. It's on the basis of that that he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In the fog of the uncertainty, the confusion, and even the fear of the future, maybe even not fear of the future, but just apathy and complacency because of what has gone on in the past, maybe not even looking at the future, he promises not only is the future secure, but there's a continuing work that he promises will be done through them if there was ever a work that happened in the past to begin with. Not only the future of their gospel ministry as a church as a whole, but that last phrase there, that last few words of that sentence, when will he bring it to completion? All the way from when he began it to the day of Jesus Christ. Now, for you guys who, who know this, you know what that, that word means throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, you hear of the day of the Lord. In Revelation, the day of Jesus Christ. Right? That's talking about when the Lord comes back and rights every wrong and redeems everything to himself and those who will be judged and found outside of him will enter eternal wrath and those who are vessels of mercy will be given salvation and eternal delight and pleasure and relationship with him. This is talking about the end of all days. It's eschatological. And what that means is now that he's talking about a broad spectrum of just people at church, just everyone in the Philippian church, he zooms in to the individual believer when he mentions that. And the reason I know that is because when I stand before the Lord on the day of Jesus Christ, I will not be standing with anybody at Trinity. It'll be me and the God of the universe, okay? So the promise is for the church, but now he's talking to you, right? And he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The promise stands that if God did something in your heart before, 
evidenced by the fruit of joy that he gets, as Paul did when he prayed for the Philippians, then he will keep that work continuing all the way until the day that he comes back. There's nothing that can do to reverse God's plans. You can't slip out of his plans and hands. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, put it this way. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. I and my Father are one. Now that's beautiful. If God began a work of salvation in you, he'll never, ever lose it until he completes it. But what's even more glorious about this promise than the fact that he won't lose you is that this assurance isn't found merely in a promise that we won't just lose our salvation no matter what we do. But even more glorious than that, our salvation is presented as a work God promises to do in us. And he promises to complete it, to fulfill it from the beginning when he promised it until the day that he comes back. 1 Thessalonians 5 puts it this way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify, to make holy, to set apart, to burn the dross off, to refine, to make perfect. Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Here's that phrase again. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here is a staggering promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is the sole agent of the work of our salvation from the beginning of the end. The beginning when he justifies us, when we go from darkness and step into the light of his grace, when we finally say, I believe, when you have the spirit of God dwelling in your heart and you're regenerated and given a new heart, he justifies you, then he continues it. It's all him. He continually sanctifies you. As you live this life, you're made holier in the presence of him. As you gaze at his face, beholding him, being transformed into one degree of glory to another by beholding his face, being unveiled more and more until it's completely unveiled, which is the work he does when he glorifies you at the day of Jesus Christ. Whether you die and go to him or you're left alive while he comes back to get his church. It's all of his work. And I don't want to believe that, right? My flesh doesn't want to believe that. Because I grew up in America, okay? You get what you earn. No one gives you anything, and if they give you something for free, then it's probably some strings attached to that, right? My heart, my sinful, unbelieving heart looks at a promise like that, and I don't want to believe it. Too good to be true. But if we're going to believe the scriptures, 
if the promise of the Lord's gracious faithfulness to keep us and bring us along from the beginning of our Christian walk to the end wasn't here, then I would have no hope if I wake up a Christian tomorrow. But since it is here, then if we believe that Jesus is ever coming back, then we must believe that we'll still be in a relationship with him when he does. If we believe Christ returns, we believe he'll return for us. And speaking about the whole church, it's true as well. If God has been in this church, in Trinity Baptist Church, if there has been fruit of gospel ministry over these years, then that's a promise not only that he will keep it, but he will continue it further which is a gracious promise, but it also sets an expectation. Read in verse 7 with me. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. So what he just said, that promise about the individual reading this and at the whole church of Philippi as a whole, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense in confirmation of the gospel. We conclude with Paul's justification for that bold promise on the basis of one, his own love for them. He holds them in his heart. He knows them. He did this ministry with them. He started it with them. He has an intimate tie with them, but more than just his feelings because we can't base our faith on feelings alone because feelings are fickle. He then goes on to give some evidence. Because you are partakers with me of grace. You are born again. You are a true church. You are made up of a body of imperfect people being made into more and more of the image of the perfect Son of God every day. You have received that grace. How do I know this? How do I know this? Well, he gives three examples. Well, he says, well, in my imprisonment, whether that means that he's su- been supported by the Philippians in, uh, in his own imprisonment, or whether that means that they were too imprisoned like he was, I don't think it's a stretch for the imagination to say that it was probably both, right? In a pagan city where they're persecuted for their faith. And he was obviously, sen- they were obviously sending Epaphroditus with gifts to Paul, and that's why he wrote a letter back to them. So they knew how to suffer with one another. That's how he knows that they were a true church. That's how he knows that God will continue the work in them, because they learned to suffer with one another. Next it says, the defense of the gospel. The defense, that word literally means to speak on behalf of. Now when you speak on the behalf of the gospel, what do you do? In a courtroom, when you testify for the gospel, what do you do? Well, I testify on what Christ has done in me. And I, and I give a defense of that. And I speak on behalf of that to people around me. He's saying, you guys have evangelized the community around you. And that's why I'm sure of this. And then what's next? The confirmation of the gospel. The confirmation. Now, Paul has already confirmed their faith. He said, I know this of you. 
I know this of you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He said he's thankfulness and joy because of their gospel ministry, the fruitfulness of their lives. The fruit of grace in you is that you will live like you have grace and give grace to others, that there will be evidence, that there will be a sanctifying work, that people will be able to look and see that you are Christians by your love, that there is a discipleship process. We do not convert people and then let them alone, right? We don't lead people in a sinner's prayer and say these magical words, hocus pocus, you're saved, and then just live your life, whatever. I'm too busy for you. They disciple people. They confirm the grace that's in them. They confirm it. They share it. And then they suffer together. And that's why he's sure of this work and them being real. But what we need to catch here is that if he said in verse 6 that he will continue it, that he will work it to completion, then there's an expectation that all three of those things will continue now. There's no looking back. There's no apathy There's no complacency about tomorrow and the future. There's no fear of the future in the kingdom of God. All of those things that were true and that happened, that he saw, he praises and thanks God for, but gives the subtle reminder that it's not done yet. This expectation is placed on them with the hope for tomorrow. Remember I said in the beginning that if we are all saints, If all of us are saints, then we get both the expectations and the responsibilities the word of God sets before us and all the blessings and promises. You can't claim verse 6 that God will complete your salvation if you don't also claim verse 7 that you will give a defense and confirmation of the gospel and that you won't be willing to suffer with other believers around you. There's an expectation presented on you for the future because of what God has blessed you with in the past. So what does this mean for the expectation and the hope for Trinity Baptist Church going forward? What does tomorrow look like for us? Do we want revival in Marion? There's a lot of talk about what revival means in the church today. We look back historically at, at revivals. We, we say we pray for revival. Would we want to see more young people come in here and meet Jesus? Are we willing to disciple and confirm people's faith? Are we willing to go outside of these church walls and give a defense for the gospel, speak on behalf of the gospel, and actually open our mouths? You know, there is an expression out there that says, Always share the gospel wherever you go. Use words if necessary. I hate that expression. And some of you probably are like, what? Because you probably say that. And I used to say it too. Here's the thing. You can live out of the gospel without saying words. The fruit of the gospel in you can cause you to love people and show people love. But I have never ever in my life did something nice for somebody else and then they say, Nick, why did you do that? 
oh, I want to give my life to Jesus right now. And even if they did, then what would the expectation be? I would have to open my mouth and tell them about Jesus. Evangelism happens when we share the gospel, when we give a defense, and then we confirm that gospel in those people's lives. Where we walk with them. We take younger people under our wing. Where we go out with those younger people and we find other people in the streets. Where we share the good news. And then we suffer together. That might not look like imprisonment like it looked like for the Philippians. But if you seek to live a godly life in this world, you will suffer persecution. Right? The scripture teaches that. Are we willing to suffer with one another? Are we willing to go to the hospital at 3 a.m., right? Are we going to say, oh, that's, that's the pastor's job, right? That's the extra saved people's job. Are we willing to cry with one another? Are we willing to make a hot meal for somebody when they're suffering and just surprise them and bring it over to their house, right? Are we willing to be able to do life with one another in an intimate way that looks different than gathering in the same seats at the same time every week and then maybe going to get lunch and then living our lives like we don't really know each other throughout the week? What are we going to do to look like the church in Philippi? What are we going to do in order to grow and leave a legacy behind? There's no apathy in the kingdom of God. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. This is the Christian life, okay? You work for God and you work for man until you retire. Then you work for God more until you die. That's the facts. Give your life for the gospel. I'm not saying preach every Sunday. I'm not saying lead a Sunday school. I'm saying do something. Get involved. Love people. Get in each other's lives. And only then will we see the revival that we say we want so badly in Marion. Right? And maybe you're in here and you don't know the gospel at all. Maybe you know it, but you don't know it. Maybe you have fooled yourself like many of us do. My personal testimony is I was under the impression that I was born again, that I was saved for years. Over a decade of my life, I thought I was saved. I thought I was a Christian. And then one night, the gospel, I heard it, struck me hard, and I realized I did not have that in my heart. God had not begun any good work in me to complete. And if that's you today, then you need to start now. From the beginning until now, maybe now is your beginning. And there's people here who want to give a defense for you, who want to confirm you, who want to suffer with you, who want to love with you and love on you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would just cut to our hearts with your word, Lord. I pray that it would not be lost on us, the need for community and the need for a future of Trinity Baptist Church going forward, Lord. I pray that we would be more zealous about our outreach, God, more zealous about pouring into people, Lord, more zealous about doing life with one another and going through the hard times and the good times with one another, Lord. 
I pray that we would foster true gospel community, Lord. I pray that we would honor the legacy of the people in our past who have done that and have, have had fruitful ministry over the years, Lord. And I pray that we would continue it going forward so that there might be more and more people named after Jesus Christ in Marion, Ohio, Lord. If there's anyone who's not born again, not saved here, Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe, Lord. I pray that you would just have them truly believe the gospel today. I pray that it would change their lives and that they would look towards you with no turning back, God. I pray that you would just stir in our hearts a new motivation for your kingdom. In your son's name I pray, amen.